Alright, um, well, uh, welcome everyone to episode 45 of Sidekickback Radio, and I'm here today with uh, Janet Graham Borba. And uh, yeah, thanks again episode for coming. Episode forty-five. That yeah, seems number... somehow momentous. That's a forty-five. Number. Yeah. Of all the benchmarks, you, it's it's probably oh, up that's there. That's a solid benchmark. <laughs> Getting close to fifty, I feel like. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. So we're gonna begin at the beginning. I mean, where are you from originally? I uh, was born in Huntsville, Alabama, but my dad was in the military, so I'm not really from anywhere. Um, mm-hmm. I grew up mostly up and down the East Coast. A little time in the Midwest. Lived mostly on military bases where they blew stuff up every day. So you got so my to dad see... was in munitions. Oh wow! Ordnance, yeah. So you got to like a free fireworks show. Yeah, not it was more sound <laughs> effects than fireworks. You show, didn't get to see it. Not so much. Okay. Not so much that. But um, and then um, my dad was stationed in Virginia when I finished high school, and so I wound up going to University of Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, where nobody made film or television back in the olden days. And um, so I went from there to Washington, D.C. and went to work in construction, real estate development stuff. Whoa, okay. Well, yeah. We're jumping a little a little bit far ahead. Okay, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> um, but my previous guest was actually also a, a military kid bouncing around. But uh, I guess the key part for me in this point is... Um, High school. Uh, what was your high school experience like? It was bifurcated. Um, we were in New Jersey for the first two years. Um, my dad was at Picatinny Arsenal in northern New Jersey, it's a great name. which is a startlingly beautiful <laughs> spot. Um, and which they, I, I jumped because in watching uh, the Miles Teller movie, Miles Teller. Whiplash? Yes. No, no, no. Uh, the uh, War Dogs. War Dogs? Oh, War Dogs, yeah. Name right. Out, yeah. Where they're, mili- they're, they're buyers. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and somewhere in the dialogue or the ADR of the film, somebody says something about uh, materials for Picatinny Arsenal. And I hadn't heard the name <laughs> Picatinny Arsenal in a really long time. I was like, oh, they did their research. Um, so uh, we were there for my first, actually, year and a half of high school, and then my dad got transferred, and this is the downside of being a military brat, mm-hmm. is that doesn't really matter what's going on in your life when he goes, family goes. Yeah. Um, my sister stayed behind and finished high school in New Jersey, but we all went down to um, uh, Fort Lee, Virginia, and I finished high school at Prin- in Prince George County, which is mostly rural county. Mm-hmm. Um very small percentage of the graduating class goes on to any form of higher education because everybody goes back and works in family business, which is farming. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but it was a great experience for me. There was a spectacularly talented guy called Rex McBarnes who taught math and <laughs> physics there. He was an amazing teacher. Great names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's great. And um, uh, and so I uh, that's what I did because you know you sort of gravitate when you're young to the great teachers mm-hmm. and. Um, then I went off to school at University of Virginia. Mm-hmm. So you had an affinity for the math and physics. Were you at all arts related? I loved reading. I'd always been a reader. Um, but there's that. There's a lot of um, stuff being talked about now in the world, particularly about um, women and women's careers. And so there's a quote from someone who, I, I must look up who it is, who said, if you can't see it, you can't be it which speaks profoundly to people who have no opportunities. But for even in my situation, where I had plenty of opportunities and great education. I'd never seen or met anyone who worked in entertainment or storytelling as a career. So it just didn't seem like something that real humans did. So I went to do what I had seen real humans do, which was business and science and 
things that, yeah. you know, doctors and lawyers and Indian chiefs. Yeah. So, so you mentioned in a previous interview, um, there was a quote about you. You said that there were no role, mo- role models. You didn't see any role models. Who were your role models at that time oh, that you did see? You in, know, in, in the I world. Yeah. Um, goodness. Um, certainly there were some teachers who, uh, who I had learned much from. Like Rex McBarnes. Like Rex McBarnes. Great role model. At Prince George County Senior <laughs> High. Um, and uh, I'm sorry, I'm stumbling here because I can't think of a specific person. Okay. I would say that my early... So that quote was more about just in relation to, to film and to TV. To film and I, TV. Sorry, I misread it. I thought you more meant like, I didn't see role models in film and TV. These were my role models over right. here. But it, it wasn't so... It you wasn't know. so clear as yeah. that. It wasn't gotcha. so clear as that. I found my early 20s, I don't know if this is true for you or, or other people, to be a bizarre and confusing time <laughs> where you're suddenly supposed to be a grown-up and support yourself and um, and forge a career. And for me, at least, I had no idea kind of who I was or what I wanted to do, mm. except that as all of my college friends went off to be doctors and lawyers and um such, I knew that those worlds were not for me. Mm-hmm. I knew that I wanted to make something with my work day, to physically make something, which is why I gravitated to construction mm-hmm. and real estate development because that was tangible. Mm-hmm. You finished your work and the walls were up a little higher or the plumbing was in. or Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, during your high school experience, so we kind of touched on the arts, but like you didn't do any theater, you didn't know like... I sang in the choir, um, which I loved, um, and I read every book that anybody put in front of me. And then in college, I did one theater class at which the professor told me that if there was anything else in life I was interested in doing, I should pursue that. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, which hurt my feelings at the time. I've heard that a few times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Really don't do this was... uh, was what I was advised. Yeah. So, um, so I became a passionate audience member. Oh, okay. Yeah. So there's still still the love there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, but spectator. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Gotcha. Um, if you can uh, go back in time in your mind uh, and imagine if you... I love to ask this question. And you look down at your CD player at the time. I assume it was a CD player because you can't be... Oh, I'm so old. Oh, you're so <laughs> kind. No, no, no. I definitely had some eight tracks. Well, if you look at your eight track player, <laughs> what what cassette is in there? Oh man, I was what? always a Bruce Springsteen gal. All right, always. Um, Boss. From the beginning, I think I paid four dollars for my first Bruce Springsteen ticket, um, <laughs> and sat ten feet from him in some gymnasium. Um, wow. And. Uh, Anyway, the multiplication to get to what I paid for the most recent tickets <laughs> you and, you and defies uncle, the imagination. You and my uncle can chat about that. I think he's seen Bruce about like 70 times. I like, have not had that privilege, <laughs> but um, but I do, do still love Bruce Springsteen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would say there were some... Uh, this is going to be a very boring part of this conversation because I was never as driven by music as I was by story. So Uh there were, you know, Springsteen for sure. And then ultimately after that, long after that, you know, Melissa Etheridge and Lyle Lovett and that kind of, um, sort of folk rock rock. Yeah. So you move on to the university of Virginia and, uh, you're an economics Major. I didn't actually major. Oh. Um, I was in a program there. It's called the Eccles Scholar Program, where you're not 
required to major you. And it's mm-hmm. designed to um, encourage people to, in the model of Thomas Jefferson's academical village, to create your own curriculum mm-hmm. and pursue your own interests. I used it as a way to get out of all major requirements and to, <laughs> and to take classes from every teacher I heard was interesting, um, regardless of their field. Mm-hmm. And to, um, uh, so I used it in a very irresponsible way, but I enjoyed it. I read tons and tons of Spanish American literature. I did do a lot of economics, um, did a lot of poetry, which I fell for at the time. Um, there was a guy whose name is maybe going to come back to me who taught a spectacularly interesting class in cultural history, which I still remember. Um, anyway, I sampled. Yeah. But it's very literary arts driven, it sounds like. Yes. Yeah. I started out thinking I was going to go to medical school because mm-hmm. Rex McBarnes mm-hmm. had told me I was good at math and science. And I th- hmm. thought that's what I would do. And I got into maybe my second year of the pre-med stuff. And I just looked around and said, these are not my people. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not the right spot for me. Wow. So, um, yeah. Um, so when, when was that life changing transition from, you know, this, you know, the real estate and the construction that you said to like your first production production job, like how, what was the first one that kind of going from there to, to filmmaking? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was, um, it's a, um, that was, am I missing a huge gap? Was there a long stretch of time? I worked in that business for for a while, for a few years. And then I had this really, really, um, rugged, uh, project where, um, I'm rugged. We had client problems. We had permit problems. We had financing problems. We had weather problems. And this is a real estate thing. It's a construction project. We were, we were renovating a piece of a shopping center and, um, and it was just really hard uh-huh. in the way that some projects just have that like gloom dust on them where everything goes wrong. Yeah. And um, at the end of the project, uh, this may be a violation of 10 different kinds of good behavior, but at the end of the project, we had built a pizza hut. <laughs> and I thought, okay, I like pizza. I like pizza hut. I don't want to work this hard for that result. Like, I want to make something else. That was yeah. literally the thought in my brain was, I want to make something else with my workday. This huh. is hard. And I don't mind that it's hard. I don't mind that, but I I want the result to be something else. And so I looked around and said, what do I love? I love books and I love films and I am not an author. So, um, uh, although I'm told I write an excellent memo, <laughs> but uh, I'm not an author. So I thought somebody must make movies. Someone must do that. Who does that? Mm -hmm. And so I started talking to anybody who would listen to me. And um, a friend said, what you want sounds like this producer's program at USC. And he happened to know it because he had practiced law for a while in Los Angeles. And so I applied to the Peter Stark program at USC. Having no film experience. No film experience whatsoever. And I applied mostly to measure how badly I would feel when they turned me down. (laughs) So that I could see, okay, this is important to me, this isn't. And they, um, at that time, the criteria are a little bit different now, I think. But at that time, they um, took sort of half their people from 
either a film education or some film experience, and the other half straight out of the business world. Hmm. Um, one of the guys that I that was in my class had come from uh, doing stuff with uh, uh, airlines, and one of the guys had been a banker, and one of the, it was that. And so they took me, and then I thought, oh, well, yeah, I can't do that. And so I deferred, and then a project I worked on um, got refinanced. And I had a, the company I worked for, the real estate company, was lovely to me. And I had a little tiny piece of this building that they refinanced. And suddenly this chunk of money landed in my lap, which was approximately equal to um, the uh, a year of tuition and mm-hmm. living expenses, and it felt like a sign. Yeah. So I thought, all right, we'll figure out the second year of the program later. Let's go. Um, and I put everything I owned into a little U-Haul and um, hitched it to the back of my grandmother's Buick and <laughs> drove across country with my best friend, and um, here we are. Yeah. So when they accepted you and you weren't expecting that, do you now know why they accepted you? Or I think it, because... Well, it may have been a couple of different things. The program was then run by this character of a man called Art Murphy, um, who had been a journalist with Variety for a number of years and then had partnered up with Ray Stark um, to start this program Mm -hmm. at USC. And he was a character. I think he liked the business background Mm -hmm. a lot. Um, And I was one of, in a program of 21 people, I was one of three women. Mm. And so maybe there was a little of that. Don't know. Gotcha. Cool. So you start this program and start the program. Did, did you fall in love? Did loved you, it. Yeah. Loved it. I remember sort of the first February, you know, you spend your first semester making very bad eight millimeter films <laughs> and, um, and mine were especially wretched. And then, um, uh, then it was like February and the sun is shining and coming from DC, that's saying something <laughs> because long about the third week in February, the entire city of Washington DC is suicidal because yeah. it has been sleeting and cold and yucky for months. Mm-hmm. So suddenly the sun is shining. I'm reading a, you know, a script and I have no responsibilities to anybody but myself and this kind of new passion. It was fantastic. I highly recommend going back to school as a grown-up. I was nearly 30. And so going back to school as a Mm grown-up, having, like, you know, you've been doing, been paying people and, you know, like having responsibilities and spreadsheets for banks and all kinds of things that you have to do when you're building a property and you have a, you know, proper grown-up job. And all of a sudden, all that's gone. And it was just to pursue an interest. Mm. Best thing in the world. It's like summer camp for grown-ups. It's great. Yeah. And I didn't have kids yet or anything else, so it was, you know, very liberating. Yeah. It was good. That's great. So what was, I guess, your first official job that you would say? Because I know you said you made some ratchet 8 millimeter films, but then oh, yeah. it was kind of that transition into doing it as a professional. Oh, um, I in I did, uh, the nice thing about, one of the nice things, there are many, about the Stark program is they set you up in an internship um, in the summer in, in between the the two years. Mm -hmm. And then I also went out because probably mostly because the internship I happened to get was in publicity, which was absolutely wrong for me. (laughs) (laughs) Movie star who will remain nameless behaving badly during a publicity shoot. I was like, Oh, this is so not for me. Um, but I met some lovely people and it provoked me to go and get my, an internship on my own, Mm -hmm. um, working for, uh, producer and that just in that kind of this person connects you to that person way I got introduced to the um, 
lovely, talented, and amazing Jim Abrams, his comedy director yes. and writer. Uh, Airplane, Hot Shots. Yeah. All that. Yep. All yeah, that. Those classic slapstick movies. Yes. Are, yes. yes. Um, <laughs> and uh, he was getting ready to start uh, a new movie, a movie called Welcome Home, Roxy Carmichael, that was written by Karen Hopkins. And um, uh, he needed an assistant. And through this kind of internship, you know, networky thing, um, mm-hmm. we got introduced. And I spent my first day working for him um, on a location scout in Sandusky, Ohio, which was hysterical because I had never been anybody's assistant and I'd never been on a location scout. So I didn't have any idea what I was supposed to do, um, except I thought, okay, it's probably like when I'm specking a new property for the real estate company. So I'm going to need, <laughs> I'm going to need a camera and a lot of extra film, film back mm-hmm. in the day. And, um, and a notebook and a pen and I don't know what else. So off we go. And it turned out that that was exactly what you need on a location scout. <laughs> I took lots so of pictures. So you guessed and you guessed right. And I guessed right. Took lots of pictures in panorama for... So what, um, was, what was your kind of assignment, if you will? They just said location scout Sandusky, Ohio, and that was no, all No, I went got? with Jim oh, and okay. with the writer and producer um, to look at locations to figure out how much of the film we would need to do there and how much of it we could stay at home mm-hmm. and do in, in um, California. And uh, anyway, so that was mm-hmm. it. And it was fun. And that movie was delightful to work on. And um, Jim and I, I worked for him for, I don't know, maybe three years. He was great to me. Um, he gave me an associate producer credit on Hot Shots, which was um, incredibly generous. Mm-hmm. And then in between the two films, we had developed a few things. We had um, optioned some material and um, got some things sort of started. And when he stood down after Hot Shots, he was going to go and write for a while, um, he let me take that stuff with me. And that I took to work with a producer at a deal at Disney. And then we I just got really lucky in that job as well because that producer um, got a bunch of things made back to back to back. And mm-hmm. so I got to start producing before I really knew anything. Yeah. Um, but we had a really, really good run. And at the end of that run, I was in um, London finishing Hackers. Mm-hmm. So this is many years later now, not many, a few years later now. Yeah. And he had come back to the States to work on um, uh, Danny DeVito picture. And so then we, we got out of sync and the deal at Disney was over. And so uh, that led me to go into HBO to interview for a movie they were going to produce um, that never got made. But they asked me to come on staff. Mm-hmm. And that was how that did I get ahead again. I do that. Kind I leap of, forward. Well, no, but you kind of got to where we're eventually going, which is HBO, which is where you're at now. Yes. And was that that time where they asked you to be on staff, Mm -hmm. that wasn't right away the senior vice president? No, no, no. I was a a, corporate titles being what they are. I started as a director. And at some point in the history of my time there, I became a vice president. And then after that, a senior vice president. Yeah. Cool. So you were making movies back in a time that was very different from now. Uh, and not to jump ahead, but we're yeah. gonna we're gonna get into HBO, which I don't like to consider like movies, right? Um, but um, so so, but I, I assume you're aware of the differences of making a movie back then as now, and I'd imagine it's very different, you know, uh, like Location Scouts, like 
some movies can't even afford it now, and they're just like, we need to shoot it in L.A. Right. as quick as we can, stuff like that, you know. Well, it resources, you know, define all. Yeah. So if you um, if you're going to try to do something for you know a half a million, you know, a, a, a micro budget movie at the start of your career, then you're going to do it at home because who wants to spend money on hotel rooms when you, and you're yeah. going to do it non union and you're going to race around and you're going to steal most of it. Mm-hmm. Um, as the budget levels go up, you make different decisions you know you head to a place where you can get a rebate because that gives you back 30 cents on the dollar and you have to work union and those things change too but there's also a lot of difference in terms of what people make even it's not even so much what people make it's how many of it you know how many films get made that are i mean the things that sort of really started my career people don't really make so much anymore mm-hmm. um it's hard to imagine a movie like Hackers would get made, but it wouldn't get made by a major, made and distributed by a major studio right. at that budget range anymore. Yeah. It would be, you know, it would be a third that amount of money and you'd take it to festivals. That's right. what I imagine it would take to get that movie made today. Um, but, um, and the movie I had worked on before that was a summer camp movie called Camp Nowhere, which Disney made. One of my all time favorites. <laughs> Which we loved. Andy Love. Kurtzman and Elliot Wald wrote that. And it's so funny <laughs> and great. And then, but, you know, that kind of movie with 22, 12-year-olds and, um, you know, maybe, I guess, I don't know. You don't see that sort of movie getting right. made so much anymore. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, those kind of low to mid-budget movies that are yeah. concept-driven rather than star-driven. Although Christopher Lloyd was in that, as you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so uh, you, you start at HBO. And, um, I told them I would stay one year. (laughs) (laughs) Of course I'm going to go back out. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And you started in physical production Mm -hmm. right away. And so you've stayed there Mm -hmm. the whole time. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess let's just jump ahead to, to right now. Uh, What would you say is your sort of job description? Um, so your, your official title is vice president of physical production. It's, it's, um, let's, let's see, official title, senior vice president, West Coast production. Um, <laughs> I report up to a guy who's the head of all production for, um, mm-hmm. HBO on the West Coast, which is all the original programming. Um, I look after, I have sort of oversight responsibilities on the movies and the miniseries. Mm-hmm. But one of the great things about HBO is that, um, for people who do what I do, which is figuring out how to make something and how long it should take and how mm-hmm. much it should cost and who should work on it and, um, can we have it ready to go on the air for this particular time? And if we can't, what could we do? And those kinds of things. Um, we work across all of us try to work everybody's got a specialization area but we all work across different formats mm-hmm. so i've done a half hour comedy i've done a big you know one hour drama i've done mini series i've done movies and that's true of my colleagues as well mm-hmm. um in terms of the movies when i first came to work there i came out of the feature world and i think what made me interesting then for hbo was that they would get to make Movies for HBO, they would get things that had been imagined as $60 million theatrical features. And then we would have the opportunity to make them for, I'm I'm making it up, $10 or $12 million Mm -hmm. for HBO. And so you needed to have some sense of how to creatively prioritize in order to figure out how you would, in order to help 
filmmakers figure out how you would do that. Yeah. Okay, here's the heart of this movie, and we can do this, but not that. Right. Um, and because I had developed material and worked a little bit more on the creative side, I was more interesting to them for that job than somebody who was a pure nuts and bolts physical production person. But over time, the specialization has been purely physical production. I don't develop scripts anymore um, or choose actors or directors or choose what we're going to make. I simply help figure out how we're going to execute it mm -hmm. and um, to HBO's needs. And yeah. Yeah. So, and so you oversee the production staff of, each individual show, I'd imagine. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. The biggest hire in my job is the line producer. So the person who's going to be, you know, on set right. at the monitor, partnered up with the director mm -hmm. and making sure that it happens, that the machine is well built and built to its resources. That person is my most important hire. And if I hire the right person, my job is incredibly easy right. because a good producer is always ahead of me. Mm -hmm. You know, knows the question before I ask it um, and is a really good communicator of what's going on remotely. Mm -hmm. And if I have that, then really I can do my job very, it's, it's much easier. It's not that problems don't come up because they do. Yeah. But, um, so that's the main person I hire. But we also try to provide um, ideas for designers, production designers, costume designers. Um, there's a whole slew of post executives who work on like, you know, editors and who mm -hmm. those people should be. And then we work on how long should it take? Where should we go? Yeah. Um, those other kinds of yeah. questions. Well, you knew I was going to ask the question about what makes a good line producer for you. <laughs> so you saw ahead in that. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Smart. <laughs> Smart is good. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm sure I have some Game of Thrones fans listening right now. Mm -hmm. Or I probably lost you at this point because we haven't even mentioned Game of Thrones yet. Uh, but there will be no spoilers or anything like that. But uh, what are some of the... So I know you work on Game of John Thrones. Jon Snow's not dead. Oh. <laughs> For a second I was like, did I miss something? <laughs> Just because it's a year ago, so... <laughs> Um, yes, but we are ramping up for season seven. It's coming soon. Not ramping so. up, filming. Well, yeah, filming, yeah. but like, uh, you know, as a collective, we're all waiting for, I think, a poster just released recently. I think ah. I saw a poster. Someone shared a poster. Okay. I mean, did you envision that Game of Thrones was going to be so large? Well, I think a... nobody could quite have imagined this, yeah. right? Um, but I will say that sort of around the end of, you know, around season two, um, when people go, who would have thought? Uh, there were a couple of us who were like, me? <laughs> like, the the underlying material is so fun. Mm -hmm. And David and Dan are such good writers and have done such an amazing job from the beginning of adapting that material that, like, I, I really do think you'd have had to be crazy not to bet on it. Yeah. So, um, but no, this level of phenomenon, I had not imagined. Yeah. Um, and I'm super proud of the way HBO got behind it. Because a lot of the a lot of folks um, didn't see it in the beginning. It wasn't the right material for them, or they just and and everybody got behind it in a huge way. Yeah. So. Well, what's interesting, I've I don't want to use the term alienating, but the material is very it's very dark and it's very mm -hmm. violent, and you wouldn't think that it would be such a mass phenomenon. And right. and I was thinking about like you know I'm watching Westworld and I'm watching and you know you keep track of what HBO does and it's very cutting edge and it's very at the forefront and yet you guys manage to 
hooking the masses so, so well with such content that's not very, you know, middle of the road. Right. If you will. Uh, is that an ongoing discussion with you guys or? Well, um, you know, again, I don't, I don't have a hand in what we choose to do yeah. necessarily other than to mostly love it. Yeah. Uh, but um, I would say that when you have, what's the right way to put it? Um, David and Dan had such a clear bead on what they were trying to do and were such capable storytellers that it, I think you can believe in that, even if it's going to go dark. And in the, that very first episode, which is, you know, is an incredibly dark ending, you know, kind of a horrific ending, um, you still, at that point, you know, sort of, there's a there's the little girl who just wants to be a princess, and there's the other little girl who imagines herself in a very little girl way as a warrior, and and there's a major love affair between um, two people who have been married for decades, and there are um, there are things there to um, wrap your arms around, even if you don't really um, want to, uh, invest yourself in something that's about, you know, incestuous sex and mm-hmm. trying to murder a child. So yeah. there's, there's, it's there is more, there's more yeah. in it to grab onto than just the stuff that's at the edge. Yeah. I think, that's, I think that's one of its, and it's got yeah. a sense of humor. That yeah. Show does. Yeah. For so. sure. Yeah. Um, what, uh, are you a part of, you're a part of other shows, I'd imagine, or miniseries or. Yeah. 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 Um, let's see. Most recently, we've just finished shooting an adaptation of a book called The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, um, which um, Oprah stars in and is a producer, an executive producer of. And uh, it's a kind of a fascinating um, personal family story set strangely against the science world. I don't know if you ever read the book. So anyway, it's a uh, it's great, and yeah. that'll be out next year. So, but we just finished filming that in Atlanta, where it was so hot, <laughs> so hot. And in Northern Ireland, it's so so cold. And in Northern Ireland, it's just wet. <laughs> it's just wet. Um, we have one of the things that actually has been a great saving rule on Game of Thrones is that uh, if it rains in Belfast, it rains in Westeros. Mm-hmm. We don't go to cover except if it's dangerous, which is always about wind and not about water. Yeah. So yeah. those those poor folks are <laughs> out making that show for you in the rain. Yeah. Um, so can you give me a sense of, of the timeline of... Of I guess so when you get the script and and when your job kind of starts on an yeah. episode or something like that you know the timeline varies sometimes you get really lucky and something has been living somewhere else um, and lands at HBO with a hey let's go mm-hmm. so um, where you know they've got um, high level actors attached and the script's in really good shape and the director has an opening right now and off you go that's rare but once in a while it happens. Usually what happens is that um, a piece of material, whether it be a miniseries or a movie or a pilot script, for example, has been developed for a while. And then the creative team decides they think it's ready um, and they'd like to see what it would take to get it made. Then the script lands on my desk or the desk of one of my colleagues um, to kind of figure it out. So you read it a couple of times. Um spend a little time figuring out whether it's something that is complex enough that it needs to be budgeted by a producer 
um, who might actually have to execute the plan, or whether it's relatively simple in production terms and we can do it in-house with the estimators in our own finance department. Um, We um, craft a schedule or have an assistant director craft a schedule. We budget that schedule and, and the other elements of the script. And then we take that back to the creative folks and say, okay, this script is going to cost this much done this way. And then the company has to decide. And that process can take, you know, a budget and a board take two to four weeks, um, depending on how complicated it is. And if it's super complicated, then you have to have, you know, visual effects vendors bid it out so you know what you're up against. Or if it's deep period, then you might want designers to look at it and tell you what it'll cost to execute. The the shooting schedule that you mentioned, how far away is that from this current process of... The shooting schedules for me almost always the first thing I do. Yeah. Um, or that or that either I do it or I have it done. Usually yeah. we commission it um, because you need to know how many sh- – the biggest cost is the production cost. Right. You need to know how many days it's going to take to shoot. Right. Um, so start from there and then take that board and step through yeah. budgeting it. Um, the board takes – it depends on how – how busy the AD is or mm-hmm. whatever, but a couple of days. Yeah. Um, but I guess, um, so when you're doing all this talking and like, like I guess because actor schedules are so like crazy, uh, I'm just, is there like a random number you pick of like, we're going to shoot it a year from now or? No, it, um, well, it depends. Most, sometimes, mm-hmm. sometimes people will say, okay, we want this actor and they're not available until then. But mm-hmm. mostly, What's a rough timeline? Maybe we would start, I'm just sort of thinking about, because there's no, as soon as I say this is kind of what usually happens, then, then there'll be 14 examples <laughs> why it's different. So maybe in the spring, say, you're looking at a script and you budget it out and then you take that back to the creative mm-hmm. folks and say, well, it's going to cost this much to do this script if we film it in the fall. Mm-hmm. And the creatives might say, that's fantastic. That never happens. So, <laughs> or they'll say, that's too much money, so we're going to go back and do another iteration on the script. Mm. Um, and then that takes what it takes, right. meaning the writer's available and game and or the writer's busy on another show and can't come back to it for a little while and yeah. whatever that process takes. Um, or you'll say, it's here, but we think there's a, a strategy that gets it to where we need it to be. And then we might say, okay, we're going to go. On the assumption we're going to get to the number we want to spend, mm-hmm. we're going to go ahead and plan. We're going to set a start date, and now we're going to cast it. Um, and But we generally won't spend a lot of money in that prep mm-hmm. until we have the key elements of our cast. Um, and certainly you have to have a director in order to yeah. cast a pilot or a movie or yeah. anything else. So. Um, if you have elements to attach, that'll define mm-hmm. your time. Once in a while, we'll be driven by an air date. Mm-hmm. I mean, we like to have loosely, we like to put our films on in the mm-hmm. um, sort of first couple of quarters of the year leading up to Emmy voting, loosely. Uh, yeah. um, and so if you're trying to get those movies on the air for March, April, May kind of things, then you can back into that right, when right, you yeah. have to, then you need this long for post and this long yeah. for shoot, and then you kind of back into that. Um, we're a little bit more flexible on the series because we put a new series on many times mm-hmm. around the year. You might have a sense that a certain show belongs in a certain season, mm-hmm. um, but that's flexible too. Yeah. So, so um, what about for Game of Thrones and it's coming into its seventh season? You know, you've, it's kind of like a it's it's in a cycle, I'd imagine. It for is. You guys. Yes, it's, it's a little bit off cycle this year because winter has come. 
Um, so we need uh-huh. to be filming more in the winter than we have yes. in years past. Right. Um, we need we need colder weather and we need the leaves off the trees mm-hmm. and all those things. Yeah. Um, I guess to use a, a specific example, maybe like like the Battle of the Bastards, which I you know in doing my research for this episode came across it, and I was watching the you know the. Uh, what's it called, the anatomy of a scene. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, oh, it's so production heavy. Yeah. You know, uh, when when did that kind of land on your desk and you're like, oh, you know. Well, fortunately, <laughs> that land that is, that is a season six episode, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So we have a team of people who have, there's so much continuity in that group. Um, we have a team of people who have been working together for seven years mm-hmm. who... Um, and so uh, David and Dan do a, a fantastic thing for a show like this, which is they very early on do an incredibly detailed outline. So every single department knows six months before they're going to have to shoot it, what it's going to be like hmm. what, in pretty much detail. They don't maybe have the full script, but they, yeah. they know what they're up against. And then um, we joke all the time about how by the time you get to three months before shooting, it's become game of meetings. <laughs> so you do, you do, um, the team does, and I'm more an observer now than a participant because they're all grown up. They yeah. know what they're doing. Um, they, uh, there are iterative meetings where every single department that's going to participate in the creating of a big episode like that breaks down every single moment of what they're going to do and what they need from everybody else and how much time they need. And then you do it again with another department and then you do it again. Mm-hmm. And then you do it again in a couple of weeks when there are more storyboards, more animatics, more. And then you do it again and you do it again. It's, it's deeply, intensively, brilliantly prepped. Uh-huh. Um, and then things happen and you improvise yeah. or the director improvises or the actors improvise. Yeah. yeah. I guess. So, um, just to jump over to acting for a bit, um, because it's such a, it's, you know, shot in Northern Ireland, you work a lot with British mm-hmm. talent, so mm-hmm. to speak in front of and behind the camera. Mm-hmm. And then there's American talent. Uh, and there's this notion which I, I feel like is an ongoing discussion on this podcast that I brought up with people is I think I talked about it with Janelle Riley from Variety, but um, yeah, British talent versus American. I mean, do you see a difference? Is there a kind of, is that part of a discussion? Well, or... it was definitely part of the discussion at the very beginning when we were literally, Game of Thrones was a really hard show to cite because um, you could feel that it was going to be very big. So mm-hmm. money is a, a very, very big issue. You mean cite with a C? To, no, to cite, S-I-T-E, to locate, gotcha. to choose okay. a place for um, because you could feel that it was going to be big and that it was going to grow. So you don't want to, you want to be in the least expensive place you can in order to have room for that. Mm-hmm. That's a piece of it. But it was also George Martin's books were, you know, patterned sort of after the War of the Roses. So the, the, the story feels very Celtic, very British Isles, yeah. right? At, at its, at its mm-hmm. DNA. Um, and so it felt like um, two things would service that. One was the landscapes, um, and um, the other was that it, that the the accent that felt most right was a British Isles accent mm-hmm. in all its variety. Mm-hmm. And so to have people who do that accent really well, you want to be you know somewhere within easy reach of of. Um, of the UK, of yeah. London, probably, which is the biggest concentration of actors. Um, 
And then we landed in Northern Ireland um, for a couple of different reasons. One, they had this old ship painting facility called the Paint Hall, which had been kind of in a very kind of rough and tumble way turned into sound stages. Mm -hmm. But it has huge high ceilings and the big elephant doors. And it was for a show that has sets on our scale. Um, incredibly um, interesting to us. Mm -hmm. And in Northern Ireland, it has all of the benefits of a small city, which London has all of the benefits of a large city, but also the fallback, which is to get to unspoiled Celtic landscape from downtown Belfast takes about 20 minutes. To do that from London takes almost two hours. Mm -hmm. So you'd rather have the time to film than be spending all that yeah. time in the car. Um, but you were talking, you were speaking to actors. So that's, yeah. that's really, it became part of, um, yeah where we located the show mm -hmm. as well as um, the fact that I think the two actors, if memory serves, that David and Dan had in their heads most profoundly when they were writing the, the show in the beginning were Sean Bean and Peter Dinklage. And so, anyway, there we are. There we are. Yeah. But nothing to add in the uh, larger picture of uh, just British versus American actors. British versus American <laughs> actors. No. Um, you know, my husband, as you know, is an actor. Yeah. And, and uh, it does feel like there's a, a, that British and Australian actors are in fashion in a way that American yeah. actors are not. Yeah. Um, which seems a shame. <laughs> seems a shame. Seems a shame. Yeah. On a typical uh, day on, on set, so to speak, um, I guess... How much time, I guess, to go back to the, the Battle of the Bastards example, because that is by far one of the most intensive, like, scenes, I think, ever yeah. to grace television. Um, you know, how much time realistically is going on between rehearsal for that and, um, you know, resetting if, you know, did someone mess up? We got to reset. Like, what, can you give a sense of, like, actually how much time that took? You know. um, wow, that I should go back and count the number of days, but it was a lot. Yeah. Um, uh, and some of them are pure stunt days, and some of them are pure visual effects days because the days that you're doing things with. And that's for both shooting and one, rehearsal. One, for, uh, or more for shooting. Okay. Um, but they rehearsed for at least two weeks, possibly three. Mm -hmm. Now I can't remember because it's mixed up in my head with what's <laughs> going on this season. Um, but. Uh, and then we filmed a lot, a lot of days. Mm -hmm. uh, if, uh, I'll have to come back to you yeah. an actual day count because I don't, I genuinely don't remember. Um, but many, and it rained, and it got muddier and muddier <laughs> and muddier. Continuity of mud is so difficult. Uh, exactly, <laughs> it's easier in Game of Thrones. Everybody's dirty, so. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. Um, cool. So, um, I guess a, a random sort of thing I notice is that you, you don't get credit on the show. No, I get health insurance. Instead. You get health <laughs> And you probably prefer the health insurance. <laughs> um, it's, it's interesting because, no, executives generally don't. At mm -hmm. some, I think New Line used to give their executives credit, mm -hmm. but most places don't. Um, and that's fine. Yeah. I'm not out there on the front lines the way the people who are being appropriately credited are. Mm -hmm. um, and I have a different kind of uh, stability. And I'm also working on multiple things at the same time, which is really the big gift of yeah. the job. Um, so it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. I'm not hurt about it. I guess for the, for the future, mm -hmm. um, 
I know that you guys are kind of in, you got some very stiff competition in terms of subscription-based content, uh, you know, with Netflix and Amazon kind of coming up. Uh, are you guys, I, I, mean, I know you're aware of it, but are you doing anything? Are you trying to mix it up or change? I mean, I don't, or are you just like, nope, full steam ahead with what our vision and everything? And I would say much more the latter. Uh, you know, there, there are lots of points of view about it. Uh, I generally speaking, think there's the more people doing good work, the more good work there is. And I think a disproportionate amount of it is on HBO as it should be, mm-hmm. um, as I like for it to be. But, um, I sort of don't mind, uh, <laughs> you know, that it's, it's a different model too. Like what Netflix does is different they, than what we do. We, ours is really curated, um, original programming in a different way than their model is to have lots and lots and lots and lots of stuff, most of which is licensed stuff that they're just making available to you because they're more of that. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. We are, as a company, pressing forward with what we do. Um, I think the subscription model generally, whoever, whatever you subscribe to is the best possible model for creative work. We don't have to. Um, we don't have to have a blowout Friday night, mm-hmm. or be dubbed a failure. We don't have to make any advertisers happy. Mm-hmm. We just have to make enough things that are really good that people will think it's worth buying. Mm-hmm. That's it. So if you're all, if if in your sort of cult, the culture of your business is just it has to be really good. It doesn't have to make every subscriber happy. It just has to have some subscribers who really love it and they want to pay for it. Mm-hmm. So that's incredibly freeing yeah. um, and really freeing for the people who bring something to us. And then HBO does a kick-ass job of putting things out in the world, of marketing them and publicizing them and of participating and encouraging conversation around them, um, both in entertainment news and elsewhere. You know, people make projects that are about things and then there's um, really worthy talk around those subjects. Yeah. So. And again, I, um, I have a friend who says everyone reacts to the world in one of two ways. You either come from a position of scarcity or, a, or a, a position of abundance. And if you come from a position of scarcity, then you're trying to protect and defend. And um, if you come from a position of abundance, it's like more is more. And I think I feel a little bit that way about the way television is changing. Um, at a certain point, we all feel barraged by possibilities. I can't watch everything <laughs> in the world. Nobody can. And so you do want it curated for you a little bit. And I think HBO does a spectacular job of choosing what they want to get behind. Yeah. Definitely. As evidenced by, I think, Westworld. It's just really I'm really glad you fantastic. like it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't work on that one, but I, I'm yeah. really happy that people are liking it. All right. Good. Um, well, I think that was that's a great note to end on. Uh, 48 minutes. Oh my flew gosh. by. We went past 45, which was our good number. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so uh, I know you mentioned, you, you'll have to say the title again, the, the Oprah film. Oh, I, I, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. It's from a book by right. Rebecca Skloot, which I highly recommend. Okay, cool. So watch out for that. And anything else you want people to look out for besides Game of Thrones? I think that one's pretty much covered. Yeah. No, no, no. No, I know. That's just the thing I had worked on most recently. So. Awesome. Cool. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time. 
Of course. And your expertise. Of course. Pleasure. And, Thank uh, you for having me. Yeah, of course. And best of luck to everything. And without further ado, uh, sign us off. Okay. Sidekick Back Radio. Watch out! Beautifully done. <laughs> well done.